Um, this is the last message in this series we've been calling Time for an Eye Exam, encouraging us to take an inward look and begin to wrestle with some of the things that may need to change within us so that things might change around us. Uh, so let me say one more time, before there can be a fresh move of God on any corporate level, there must be a fresh move of God in the hearts of individual believers. And so take that with you. And I trust you'll continue to chew on where you're at in that process. The word revival, it says, uh, again, today is ready for the R word. The R word, contrary to his thought, it is not Reuben, uh, but it is actually revival. Um, We had a conversation about that via text. So um, the word revival comes from the Latin root vive, or vive, uh, meaning life. In order for something to be revived... To live again, it must first have been vived. And I know that's not a word. Uh, Revival is for believers, uh, those who already have God's life in them. It is the word we use to describe those seasons when God is restored to his rightful place in our lives. All right? God has a place in our lives that is his And sometimes life can crowd him out of that space, no matter how devout we are. And it is appropriate for there to be times when he is restored to that rightful place in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. Relationships are restored and believers return to their first love for Christ. And again, for some of us, that's a long time ago. But again, I remember some of the crazy enthusiastic things I did in the infancy of when my faith became real, personal, and life-changing. Getting up really early in the morning to go pray with a bunch of high school students before they went to class, and those kinds of things, that was just part of that first love, Uh, a desire, again, I worked the night shift for a lot of years, working the night shift, getting out at 7 a.m., showering, eating breakfast, and then going to minister to about 300 uh, children that were brought in on buses. This is the 70s, folks. Uh, that were brought in on buses every Sunday to a local school so that we could minister to them. Uh, so that, that first love stuff and having that first love restored. And I would simply say many of you are fully aware of this, but historically there have been numerous periods of great nationwide supernatural movements of revival. And I will say now, I'll probably say it again before I'm done, uh, but only God can bring revival. But he will not bring it unless his people desperately want it. I suspect there have been countless times God would look down at groups of believers and individual believers and say, I would so much like to slap you upside the head with revival. I would like to divinely impose revival in your life or in their lives. But he chooses to wait for us to want it. As I will note, while revival is a stirring in the hearts of believers, typically once it starts, it inevitably influences others to turn to God as well. So it starts in the heart of a believer, but as the hearts of believers are stirred supernaturally, it cannot help but begin to influence those 
and help others to make the choice to enter into a real, personal, life-changing relationship with God. Today, I'm going to fairly quickly touch on six marks of true revival. And please understand, I'm not foolish enough uh, or naive enough or bold enough to suggest to you that this is some kind of surefire recipe for revival, but rather some observations on the various elements that typically come together with the Spirit of God in His timing to ignite revival. And the first of those is extraordinary or extraordinary prayer. It is oftentimes something that is spontaneous and protracted in that it lasts for extended periods, weeks, maybe even months, of prayer meetings with increased intensity calling upon God to move. And I'm going to go back in history for some of these. Uh, some of you remember back in 1858, right? Okay, no, even those people like myself shook our head no on that. But in 1858, there was what was called a prayer revival, and it's simply oftentimes referred to as the prayer revival of 1858. There was a man named Jeremiah Lanthier. He was a lay missionary to the business people in New York. It was a time of great financial crisis. There had been a few years of unprecedented growth. Financial groups had speculated and made enormous wealth, but were positioned for a fall. The crash came in 1857. By October, banks were closing and stocks were falling dramatically. In November, only the presence of armed troops on Wall Street kept a crowd of hungry, distraught workers from breaking into the sub-treasury to steal millions of dollars. Things were desperate. People are ready to literally break into a government vault because they cannot afford to feed themselves and their families and they see no hope. In September of 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear became concerned for the well-being of the businessmen. There was a period, if you do some research, where there was a lot of suicide in that area. And he advertised a noontime prayer meeting. And again, just chew on this. Have you ever had a great idea from God? I mean, you're just convinced this is it. You know, this is just going to change your world, change somebody else's world. He felt, in light of this crisis, that it was time for God's people to pray. And so he advertised a meeting at noon. He secured a second-story room in the North Dutch Reformed Church, and he went there and prayed for 30 minutes all by himself. But God, I thought we had a plan. Finally, a total of six people showed up to pray. Sounds like revival to me, right? The second week, 20 people came. Tripled in size. By the fourth week, they were already up to 40 people. Really? Again, I don't know him. I don't know his background. If I were Jeremiah, I would start to question, did I really hear from God? By October, a 100 men began meeting daily, many of them unbelievers. Soon, spontaneous noon prayer meetings began to appear across New York. In six months, over 50,000 people were meeting daily at the noon hour for prayer. One man noticed as he traveled from New York to Boston that every town he entered 
had thousands gathered at noon every day in every church for concerted prayer. I will say this repeatedly this morning. I read that, and I simply wonder, why not now? When I look at just the past 18 months in our country, where were those prayer meetings? Maybe they were out there, and I just didn't know. But I find myself thinking, at noon, every day, 50,000 people just in the New York area, and it wasn't nearly as massive as it is now. We'll come back to that revival in a few moments. There's a man named James Burns. As he wrote on revival, he said this, No revival can come from below. Understand, I don't care how much we pray, we cannot create revival. No revival can come from below. All attempts to create revival fail, nor can we bring revival down since prayer is not the cause of revival, but the human preparation for one. All right? By prayer, we prepare the soil. Is there a disposition to pray for revival? Are devout men and women everywhere becoming alarmed, not for the success of the church, but for the glory of Christ? The church is the bride of Christ, and he loves the church. But it is not about the church. It is about the church as a means of displaying the glory of Christ to a broken and dying world. (sighs) Extraordinary, extraordinary prayer. Here's a question. Don't answer it yet. Who determines whether or not there is a season of extraordinary prayer in Caring Community Church. Who determines that? Some of you have been married before, and you may have done something similar to this. The response is, I do. I will ask the question again, and you will respond if you dare. Who determines whether or not there is a season of extraordinary prayer in Caring Community Church? Yeah, each of us individually makes that determination. The crazy thing is, is for us to, and and please understand, I'm not comfortable saying this, but it happens with me whether a 100 people show up or whether I'm alone. It starts with me. And it starts with you. And I I just, I know I'll say this again too. I explained to Reuben that after you turn 60, you have permission to repeat yourself unashamedly without apology. All right. And I'm well past 60. But I, I just, I just wrestle a bit with what would it take for there to be that movement of prayer in our midst. Extraordinary conviction and repentance. Significant conviction that leads to genuine confession, repentance, and testimony. By testimony, I don't just mean I've been changed, 
but the testimony of a transformed life. And again, conviction and repentance must be tied. It's one thing to feel sorry for your sin. It's one thing to feel sorry for your uh, lack of spiritual warmth and enthusiasm. But it's another to feel bad enough about it that you actually change and do something different. Conviction is just the feeling. Repentance is putting those feelings into action and being different because of it. And I would share an example from the scripture that uh, most preachers turn to at least on some degree of regular basis. And it is the day of Pentecost. And remember, uh, the, the, the believers, small in number, were recovering from the crucifixion of Christ, had witnessed his ascension into heaven and had experienced a fresh outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And Peter got up to preach to a crowd of skeptics, cynics, and those who opposed all that he stood for. But the Spirit of God moved him to preach. And after he had preached, it says in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 37, When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message and were baptized, excuse me, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So these people had gathered because God had somehow stirred in their midst and they didn't come expecting to hear a sermon. They didn't come expecting to be convicted. They didn't come anticipating a call to repentance. But as they heard God's word, they began to experience that conviction that only he can bring. And they responded to that conviction by saying, what am I supposed to do? And 3,000 of them said, Okay, that's what I will do. When God's Spirit moves in the hearts of believers, there are times we all need to feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Not so that we're miserable. We don't need to live with a backpack full of guilt that we haul around. But sometimes we need to feel the conviction enough to say, yeah, something needs to change. And that's the repentance piece. We're told, and I'll come back to this in a few moments as well, but a little bit later in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, after the 3,000 were added to that number, those people began to lean seriously into what it meant to be revived in Christ. And we read a few verses later in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily, people's lives were being transformed. Acts chapter 319 puts it this way. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent then and turn to God. That's when the refreshing comes. So I ask you this question. Who determines whether or not 
there is a season of extraordinary conviction and repentance in Caring Community Church. Yeah. Now, parents, I just need you to hear this. Spouses, I just need to hear this. Fellow church members, I just need to hear this. As tempting as it may be, it is not our job to bring conviction in the lives of others. It is our job to be in tune to the Spirit of God bringing conviction in our lives. I'm not saying you don't need to speak truth, but we are not the messengers of conviction. Only God is. Extraordinary love and unity. When there is revival, there is a massive renewal of love for God, and a massive renewal of a love for God generates a renewal, a heightened sensitivity to love for others. And there is an unusual unity among true believers. Again, I don't consider myself a student of revival, but I've read some stuff on revival. And there is this crazy coming together of people to meet with God and to be used by God and to honor God and to serve God. And many of the barriers that we normally allow to get in the way seem to fall away. And the stuff that used to matter, that used to divide us, just doesn't seem to matter as much as walking and serving with him. Ephesians chapter 4, again, I've read this often, starting with verse 1. As a prisoner, as a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, if someone like Paul says, I want you to step up, called you by name and says, hey, I want you to step up and be worthy of the calling that God has on your life. To me, that's a sit up and pay attention moment. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling? He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. To me, that sounds like a pretty clear call to unity. And again, I just say, where is this? Where has this been? And why haven't we seen it? So again, who determines whether or not there is a season of extraordinary love and unity in Caring Community Church? Now, some of you, I'm not judging... But some of you may be thinking, yeah, but what about so-and-so? My sense is, again, I, I have never experienced a corporate revival. But I gotta believe when God's Spirit is moving as only His Spirit can, there probably aren't a lot of if-onlys. And have you met so-and-so moments? There's probably a lot more, God, you've got this. And we're in this together. Extraordinary 
worship. Deep, authentic, passionate worship. And again, I'm going back in time. All right, 1904. This is a secular newspaper. The Welsh newspaper called the Western Mail. They published the following report on November 10th, 1904. A remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Lacquer. Now again, just, just imagine, does, are, do they still make newspapers? I, I, I'm clueless. Okay, just imagine your news feed on whatever device you read your news. Reporting on a revival in Albion, Michigan. A remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Locker. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts, a native of Locker, has been causing great surprise at Mariah Chapel. I love that. It's like, why are we surprised when God shows up? You know, that's it. There's a lot to be said there. Um, He's been causing great surprise at Mariah Chapel. The place has been besieged by dense crowds of people unable to obtain admission. Can you imagine Pat and Todd standing at the end of the parking lot saying, nope, nobody else can come in, Uh, we're full. To, To be described, imagine me filling out our denomination report on attendance and saying, we were besieged by so many people. We had to lock the doors because we were violating fire codes. Why is that laughable? I, 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 again, I, I, I don't have an answer. The place has been besieged by dense crowds of people unable to obtain admission. Such excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is situated has been lined with people from end to end. Now again, I'm thinking they were probably walking... But imagine, you know, have you ever been here when there was a big funeral across the street and they let out and you just got to sit here forever while all these cars come by? Can you imagine you turn onto Irwin Avenue and there's a traffic jam? Because they're all headed to church? It just makes my head explode. Many who have disbelieved Christianity for years are returning to the fold of their younger days. One night... So great was the enthusiasm invoked by the young evangelist that after his sermon, which lasted two hours, nod your heads, after his sermon, Ruben's going to say amen, after his sermon, which lasted two hours, the vast congregation remained praying and singing until 2.30 in the morning. Now, Let's be honest. If I preach for two hours today, you're going to be thinking, where's the bathroom and it's lunchtime. You're not going to be thinking, can we please pray and sing for another five or six hours? I'm just saying. And then it says, shopkeepers are closing early in order to get a place at the chapel. Can you imagine? We're having services here at 7 o'clock at night and family fair says, oh, sorry, we're closed, we're all going to church. Really? Now, friends, I have had some really special 
worship experiences in my life. I've been to some events that went on for extended periods of time. But when you start to push the two, three, four-hour range, I'm like, wow, this has been great, but I'm kind of done. Or what about not a huge gathering, but a time when a small group, a group this size, is just worshiping, singing our second song set, and we just sense a freshness of his spirit moving further on. And maybe you're the only one in the room who senses it, but just an extraordinary moment of worship that meets you right where you're at and helps you to realize God's got this. Helps you to realize maybe you're not where you ought to be and you want to get back there. I remember, and most of you have heard the story, but again, I'm over 60. Um, I remember a worship service that I went to reluctantly where I responded to an altar call that I said I would never ever do because his spirit was moving. Other than Diana, I'm not sure if anybody else in that room was touched and made a faith decision. But I know we did, independent of each other. We we made a pinky swear before we went in that we'd never do that whole altar thing. (laughs) Don't do that because God just has fun with it. All right, I'm just saying. All right. But extraordinary worship, it doesn't have to be 10 hours. It can be 10 minutes of sincere, real connection that generates a motivation to change. Who determines whether or not there is a season of extraordinary worship at Karen Community Church? It's not the worship team, folks. They can be really, really good. And we just don't get with the program. Or they can be... Did they not rehearse this week? (laughs) And God's in it. I remember after I began to understand what worship needed to be in my life. Because for a long time, it was just singing. It wasn't worship. And it was just biding my time till I got to do my thing. I'm not proud of that. But when I began to see what God had for me in that, I remember going to a church that was from a very different tradition from ours. It was very formalized, what the experts call high church. And I'm thinking, oh, can't they just do music like we do? Come on. And God and I had a little intense moment. And he said, hey, dude, I'm still here. You may not like the song. You may not like the way they do it. You may not like the tempo. You may not like the building. But I'm still here. It's like, I could worship him here. Regardless of what anybody else is doing. Extraordinary worship. 
Extraordinary witness and service. Incessant proclamation and attention to the gospel. Believers began to live, begin to live for the sake of ordering their lives according to the principle, according to the principles of Christ and to advance his church. In other words, the church starts to be the church. I mentioned Acts chapter 2 and I'll pick up with verse 42 where I left off before. After this movement of God on that day of Pentecost and 3,000 people coming into a real personal life-changing relationship with Christ, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to those things. And everyone was filled with awe and wonder at the, excuse me, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. God was moving and people were noticing. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And God added to their numbers daily. To me, that says, that group of people said, we will do whatever it takes to pursue God and to show others what it means to follow Him. When I think of extraordinary witness and service, I think it's that same thing today. I'll do whatever it takes. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessings. And again, I, I say, where is this? You expect it by now. Who determines whether or not there's a season of extraordinary witness and service in Caring Community Church? Finally, extraordinary spiritual awakening. Believers first and then others. One author describes awakening in this way. Awakening generally bursts a return to the Bible as God's spoken directive for guiding the affairs of men. A return to biblical principles, to a biblical worldview. The important mark of a spiritual awakening is that the social mores of even the unconverted change to approximate those of the Christian conscience. Can you imagine God stirring in our hearts to the point that our culture begins to change to imitate us instead of us changing to imitate our culture? What a novel thought. I just wonder what it would take. In Virginia, in the 1770s, the Methodist movement, over a couple-year period, the population grew by 200%, and the Methodist movement grew by 1,400%. You think they were shaping their culture? I think they were probably dominating it. It says... Every church had meetings that lasted five or six hours and all night was not uncommon. Now, 
if you're at all like me, I, I read that and I get tense. It's like, have you seen my schedule? What would have to give, what would I have to give up? What would I have to move to the margins in order to see that happen? Again, I, I'm not being critical because I've been where you're at a lot. And if it got to be, you know, well, you guys are gracious. I could, I could probably get to 1130 before you got too antsy, right? But by about quarter to 12, you're thinking, is, is he, is, did he lose his mind? You know, I'll see the kids running to the playground or I'll see teachers looking through the window there. Ron's giving me the sign. It's like, dude, have you lost your mind? But by one thirty, two o'clock, you're missing appointments or your nap. <laughs> That's right. In 1770, in three small counties in Virginia, there were over 3,200 conversions. Just, just imagine. Jackson, Calhoun, Branch County. 3,200. I mentioned earlier the prayer revival of 1858. In two years, 1857 through 1859, they recorded over one million converts. And the total population at that time was 30 million. The current population of the United States, according to Google, so it's got to be right, is about 3.29 million people. Do the math. That's 10 million or more converts. What would that do to shape our country? I'm just going to warn you, it's a trick question. Who determines whether or not there's a season of extraordinary spiritual awakening in Caring Community Church? No, you don't. God does. I told you it was a trick. But he won't do it if we don't want it. That's a given. I don't have an answer. I've been preaching for over 40 years now. I've never had an answer. I've asked these questions before. Why not me? I've enjoyed some very, very special connections with God. I've seen him move in ways I couldn't have even imagined. But but I've not seen what we're talking about here. Why not me? Why not here? Why not now? I, I don't have answers. But I think those are questions God would have us each ask. Why not me? Why not here? Why not now? I'm going to close with a passage of Scripture that I've referenced before in this series, but I'm just going to read Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed your favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. 
you forgave the inquiry of your people, the iniquity of your people, and covered all their sins. You set aside your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Can I just suggest that's a starting point? Show us your unfailing love and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord's, God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Please pray with me. Father, I don't know why not me and I don't know why not here and I don't know why not now. But I know that it is perfectly appropriate for us to say and for us to pray, Lord, revive us again. Or perhaps more appropriately, Lord, revive me and use me to do whatever you want to do to perhaps stir others as well. But Father, revive me. And as we're about to sing, Father, You've done it in the past. Help us to position ourselves that you will move in extraordinary ways in our time. We thank you, Father. Amen.